So, Lord God, we thank you for who you are, and we pray now that you would help us to preach. God, I pray especially for those that are new, that you'd help them to preach. I mean, well, all of us, that you'd open the eyes of our heart, but we're getting, Lord, this is the last sermon from the Revelation in our series after a year and a half, and Lord God, I am just overwhelmed by the picture, and I, I just despair sometimes thinking I cannot connect all the dots for people, and that's true. All the dots are not entirely connected for me, but you are the one that connects all the dots, Jesus. You are what everything means. So when people think to themselves, what the heck, I pray that you would remind them, it all means me, Jesus. Would you remind our hearts and would you help us uh, to see? Um, you are from the bosom of the Father, Jesus. You reveal the Father. So cause us to see through the power of your Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, uh, how many of you have a mirror? If you would have a mirror, would you raise your hand? Okay, just raise your hand because we pass out these mirrors, but I didn't know if we had enough for everybody. Okay, keep your hands up. Okay, if you don't have a mirror, make sure that you're sitting by someone that has a mirror, okay? All right, now this is what I, we talked about, we talked about mirrors last week, remember? And now you have a mirror, and this is what I want you to do with your mirror. Take out your mirror and look at the mirror in such a way that you see your eyes. Look at your own eyes in the mirror, okay? Now, look at your left eye, and now look at your right eye. Now look at your left eye, look at your right eye, right eye, look at your left eye, look at your right eye. Okay, now, did, was anybody not able to do that that had a mirror? Borrow the mirror of your neighbor, okay? Borrow the mirror. If you, if you didn't have a mirror, borrow the mirror, okay? And now if you... If you just did it and you still have a mirror, you can do it again. Okay, look in the mirror, look at your left eye, look at your right eye, look at your left eye, look at your right eye. Did you see your eyes move? Okay, do it again. No! Right? Okay, now I want you to turn to a person next to you and I want you to look them in the eye, okay? Turn to a partner, find a partner, look at them in the eye, okay? If you're sitting apart, go sit next to them, all right? You gotta get close. That's right, Bill. You walk over there and look at Gene. Look him in the eye. It's kind of romantic. Look him in the eye. And now what I want you to do is I want you to look at their left eye. Go ahead, look at their left eye. Now look at their right eye, okay? And now watch as your partner looks at your left eye and then looks at your right eye. Okay, go ahead and do that. Joe, you can turn around and do that with, uh, with somebody, okay, all right. Now, did you see their eyes move? Yeah! Now tell them, tell your partner if you saw their eyes move. Okay, so who are you gonna believe? I mean, what the heck? I mean, what's, what's, what's going on? I was talking to Marisa, who's an optometrist, last night, and uh, she said all of this is true. You see, you, you cannot um, see your own eyes move because they're moving. The, the optics get all messed up. But instead of your vision just getting blurry or fuzzy, like if a camera suddenly moves, uh, you just see your eyes unmoved. The problem isn't with the mirror. It doesn't lie. But your brain lies. 
Your brain does lie all the time. When it can't make sense of reality, it creates reality. And that's not only true for that moment, it's true for all moments because your eyes cannot actually see now. They can't see now, for it takes time for your brain to process every image, particularly if the image is, is moving. We say, keep your eye on the ball, but no mere mortal can actually do that. When a professional tennis player keeps his eye on the ball, he's actually keeping his eye on where the ball was a moment ago, about one-tenth of a second ago. If the ball is traveling at 150 miles per hour, as it does for a professional tennis player, it means that the tennis player sees the ball about 22 feet from where it actually is. But the brain predicts where it would be now and tells you that's where it is now. And that's why professional tennis players can hit tennis balls traveling at 150 miles an hour, but they cannot swat a housefly which moves at five miles an hour. <laughs> a housefly is unpredictable because a housefly has a brain of its own, a mind of its own. A housefly is alive. Your brain tries to calculate where it is and tells you where it is, so you think you know where it is, you think you even see where it is, but you don't! You're believing a lie! You're believing a lie and constructing a story in your own brain, and that actually works pretty well. If your world is full of tennis balls and not houseflies, if your world is full of things, but nothing with a mind of its own. If your world is full of matter and energy, but absent of people. If your world is dead. Well, this is all from a great TED Talk titled, Time in the Brain, the Illusion of Now. And this is how the um, presenter ended his presentation. So where does that leave us with the question of when is now in the brain? I don't know. And the one thing I do know is that when you open your eyes, whether these beautiful eyes or your own, when you open your eyes and look out into the world, there's one thing that you are not seeing, and that is now. We can't see now. And that means I cannot observe who I am. That's weird. But modern physics gets even weirder. Quantum mechanics clearly implies that at some fundamental level, nothing is real unless it is observed by a conscious observer. But I cannot observe me because I am the observer. So the me that I observe is not <laughs> who I am. I am the me that is doing the observing. And that me does not exist unless it's being observed by a person. Now! And only that person could tell me who I am. You can't see now. And it's interesting that God's name is I am that I am as if he is always now. I can't see him, but he can see me, and he does see me right now.
No one has ever seen God, writes John in John 1.18. The only begotten God, who is the Son, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. He's the heart of God, nailed to a tree in a garden. I can't make sense out of all of that, but maybe it can make sense out of me. Well, I hope you see this much, that we each create our own reality. You just did it just, just a minute ago using a mirror, but the illusion was exposed by a second mirror. The first mirror was dead, and so your brain could more easily manipulate the data, the information, the knowledge. The second mirror was alive. You looked into a living mirror. On the surface of the cornea of that living mirror, you could see your own reflection, just as you did on the surface of the glass. However, this mirror was not so easy to manipulate, right? Because it could talk. And more than likely, you trusted what, what it said, which brings up a fascinating point. And that is that your ability to arrive at the truth wasn't dependent on your intelligence, but upon your capacity for trust. In Greek, pistis, also translated faith. Your ability to arrive at the truth was dependent on faith. And so a little child could arrive at the truth faster than like a physicist or a theologian. I mean, someone with greater intelligence is more likely to trust their own perception, right? And a little child is more likely to trust their neighbor's perception. And hopefully that neighbor is mom, mom or dad. I mean, the physicist would argue, no, I'm sure I saw my, I repeatedly saw my, my eyes not move. I have empirical evidence that my eyes did not move. A little child would say, okay, mom, if you say my eyes moved, I guess they moved. A little child trusts. And Jesus said, you must become like a little child in order to enter. But now he said that, and this is really important, listen closely, he said that to adults. And you cannot become a little child if you are a little child. See, there's a problem with little children. They're idiots, like we said, like we said last week. They naturally trust, but they really do not know who to trust. A little child might trust a talking snake, for instance. A little child doesn't know who is good and who is not good, who's, who's evil. So we protect them, right? We protect them. And yet, we want them to learn who and who not to trust. We want them to live a story that includes an encounter with evil so that they will learn to trust the good. We want them to grow up. We want them to grow up, leave home, and come back saying, Mom, Dad, I've seen a lot, and I trust you. You're good. Let's kill the fatted calf and have a party. <laughs> we want them to live a story and then love us in freedom forever. You see, that's what stories do. They give you the knowledge of good and evil, but not just dead knowledge, like a list or a law. They give you living knowledge. Stories reveal people. 
Not only what, they reveal who is good and who is evil. That's how we come to know that the talking snake is evil and the Word of God is, is good. Stories are rather remarkable things, and they reveal remarkable things about us. As you're reading a story, you naturally create a reality, right? You try to connect the dots. You give it meaning. You read, they nailed him to a tree, and you think it means all is lost. And then you read, he rose from the dead, and it changes all the meaning. All is lost suddenly becomes all is found. But that's not the meaning that you gave. That's the meaning that was given to you by the author and his plot, his logos, his word. If Scripture is right, we're all in a story, and we're each trying to anticipate the plot. That is, we're each trying to give everything meaning. We're each telling ourselves a story, and yet we are a story that's being told. If Scripture is right, the story you tell yourself is an illusion. But the story that's told is who you truly are, and the plot to that story will transform every event in the story that you have told yourself, uh, the story of your own creation and all things with you. That's just how stories work and how they work you. While you're reading a story, you try to anticipate the plot, even create the plot, but by the end of the story, the plot has created you and transformed every event in the story. And you're not just reading a story, you're reading the story that, that you're, you're, you are the story. You're the story that you're trying to read. If Scripture is right, you're a character in a story being written who is constantly tempted to rewrite the story. And when you rewrite the story, you write yourself into nowhere and nothing. And when the author writes you back in, nowhere and nothing becomes somewhere and something. It's a story of grace. Somewhere and something is inside of the city, and nowhere and nothing is outside of the city. But this, this is my point. Okay, if you didn't follow all that. <laughs> the me that I observe in a mirror is not who I am. To know who I am, someone must observe me and tell me who I am. And to trust their word, I need their story. So as, as, as we've discovered, when you look in the mirror and judge yourself, observe yourself, you create a false self trapped in a reality of your own making. But when you are observed by someone you trust, you become real in a reality that is not of your own make, making. You, you wake up from the dream of your own sovereignty, your insanity. We're talking about two mirrors. One is dead, like the pocket mirror, and one is living, like the person sitting next to you. And they remind me of the two mirrors that we talked about last week. The evil queen had a mirror. The evil sovereign 
uh, had a mirror. Because it was a cartoon, it's, it spoke back to her, but we understand that it spoke her own thoughts and that her thoughts were death. The mirror was good, but the way she took knowledge from the mirror was bad. She looked in the mirror asking this question, who's the fairest, who's the most beautiful, who's the fairest in the land, so she could make herself the fairest in the land. She wanted to be first by making others last. She wanted to be a winner by making others lose. She wanted to be most beautiful by killing everything and anything more beautiful than herself. She wanted to capture the heart of Snow White and put it in a box. She wanted to create her own reality but everything in her reality was ugly and dead and she was trapped forever alone as long as she took knowledge from her mirror. She had a mirror. And Snow White also had a mirror. I'm reaching, I'm reaching for the The queen wanted to take knowledge of the good to make herself good. Snow White wanted the good to find her and make everything good. That is beautiful. The queen tried to conquer the good, and so she took knowledge of the good, and Snow White wanted to be conquered by the good, and so she was known by the good and became good. In nine months, she might have even given birth to the good. <laughs> the life of her prince. They each had a mirror, and we have a mirror. It's a tree in the middle of the garden, and upon it is the good in flesh who is the life. Is that the queen's mirror? Like the pocket mirror that you, you held in your hand? Or is that Snow White's mirror? Like the person sitting next to you right now? See, maybe it depends on how you take it or receive it. According to Scripture, there are two ways of knowing, and according to philosophers, there are two ways of knowing. The first is like the queen's mirror. It's how we know things that we can understand, things that we can comprehend, things that we can control and judge, things that we can test. Emperia in, in Greek, it means to test, Emperia, and that's where it gets its name, the empirical method. It's an absolutely marvelous way to know about things. Sometimes it's called science. And when we use the things that we learn, it's called technology. It's a wonderful way of coming to know about things, but it's a terrible way to get to know people. They're not technology. If a scientist wants to know about a tree, he cuts it down and counts its rings. He, he, he knows about it, but he can no longer know it. It's dead. If a scientist wants, uh, if, if a scientist wants to know, if a man wants to know uh, about a woman, he can cut her down and dissect her, learn about her spleen, her kidneys, her heart, but he can no longer know her, for she can no longer know him. 
If a theologian wants to know about God, maybe he could chop him down, dissect all the pieces. Hell, he could nail him to a tree and put him in a box. If that was possible. He might know something about God, but he could no longer know God. He just crucified God. The way, the truth, the life, the good, and all things with him. So actually, he couldn't know anything, and everything would be dead or just an illusion. He would have created his own reality in which he was trapped utterly alone, emperor of his own empire and utterly alone in hell. The empirical method. Great for knowing about things that you have judged us less than you, and yet terrible for knowing things greater than you and your ability to judge or comprehend or understand. Like a wife. There are two ways of knowing. The first I'll call empiricism. Most modern folks think that's the only way you can know anything. And, and so, of course, we have no idea who we are, what anything means, and why we feel so utterly alone and, and kind of dead. Two ways of knowing. Number one, empiricism. And number two, revelation. To receive a revelation is to worship. And to worship is to receive a revelation from God. When we worship God, we observe the one who always observes us, the author of our story. When we worship God, we see because we are seen by I am. We cannot see now, but he is now and he sees us. When we worship, we wake up from the illusion of our own sovereignty. When we worship, we lose ourselves and find ourselves. If you reflect on this, it's, it's only then that we're, that we're truly happy. Fake worship sucks, but true worship is happy. When we worship, we comprehend because we have been comprehended. We know because we are known. We, we conquer because we have been conquered by love. Genuine worship is absolute ecstasy. We're at the end of the revelation, and we should ask, what's the point? <laughs> this is the point. Worship God. Who is he, we ask? Remember, the title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus. What's the point of the revelation? What's the point of history? What's the point of all creation? Worship God in Christ Jesus, period. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of his broad place and of the river, on this side and on that, is a tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign into the ages of the ages. John looks, and he sees himself. We saw this in the last chapter. His name is on one of the foundation stones. 
In the fourth and fifth chapter, he, remember, he saw the 24 elders around the throne. He would have been one of those 24 elders. He looks and sees himself. This is like a mirror. But it's a living mirror. It's a face. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and they will see his face and worship him. When John looks at the new Jerusalem, he's seeing himself in the eyes of God. It's a living mirror. It's a face. And it's a story. And that's why I've showed you all of these beautiful high-tech graphics throughout this series. Not so that you would get all of the details, but so that you'd understand it's all one incredible story. So John looks and he sees the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and from it flows four rivers. He doesn't see two trees in the middle of the garden, he sees uh, one, and it looks like uh, Jerusalem in the promised land, the holy land. It's a tabernacle and a temple, and in the inner sanctuary there is a, a coffin that contains the law on tablets of stone. It's like humanity. Humanity wanted the knowledge of good and evil and so took the life of the good on the tree and God said, hey, you want the knowledge of the good? Here's the knowledge of the good. It's the law written on stone. Now put it in a coffin, in a box, in the middle of the tabernacle. Here's the law. Keep it in the ark. You see, we've all lusted after the heart of God in a box, haven't we? But now, on top of this box, which is the throne of God, stands a slaughtered lamb. He is the good in flesh. He is the life. He is the living law of love, the fulfillment of the law, the content of the, the substance of the law. He's risen from the dead, and he is the judgment of God. He stands on the mercy seat that is a throne uh, where the judgment comes from, and he is mercy. God consigned all to disobedience, says Paul, that he may have mercy on all. From the throne that is a tree flows the river of life. The spirit is life and the life is in the blood of the lamb. It's the nephesh, the soul of the lamb, the eschatos Adam, and we are his bride. It flows from the throne and out of the garden until the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. And wherever the river goes, it brings healing and it brings life. John sees the tree of life Everywhere, the tree is the decision of God from the heart of God, and his decision is to create souls, to create humanity in his own image. Each of us is a vessel of wrath, like a grape of wrath that gets transformed into a vessel of mercy, a vessel of blood that's wine and wine that's blood. At the tree, God crushes the soul that has damned itself, for it only takes and never gives. He crushes the soul that only takes and never gives, and he turns it into a soul that freely chooses to love, freely chooses to lose its life and find it, lose itself and find itself. The new Jerusalem is the body of Christ, who is the bride of Christ, and she is made at his bleeding side. The new Jerusalem is billions of souls in a communion, a communion of life. She is entirely free and eternally happy because the will of all is the free will of each. That's the judgment of God, and it's eternal. It is eternal life, and it is the good, and it is who you truly are. Everything else is nowhere and nothing but a vain illusion. This is the judgment of God. When you judge the judgment of God, you trap yourself in hell. 
And when the judgment of God judges you, you enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the judgment of God is a story revealed in a person who is the beginning and the end, revealed in a person uh, who is the plot. The judgment of God is good, and the judgment of God is, is life. The judgment of God looks like two trees at the start of the story, but in the end you see only one. And you know that the good is the life, and all evil works to reveal the good who is the life, so you would fall in love with the good and the life and freely choose him for, for, forever. The judgment of God is love and life, eternal life. When you stop taking knowledge from Christ, to judge and justify yourself. When you stop taking knowledge from Christ to judge and justify yourself and start worshiping Christ, for he has judged and justified you with his life, then his presence begins to transforming the, transform the, the, the meaning of, of all things. All is lost turns into all is found. All is lost turns into all is found as you worship and find yourself unable to stop worshiping because you cannot imagine why you would ever want to stop worshiping. It's your heart's deepest desire. You've, you've been found and you agree with what you are. The eternal decision, this is what you are, the eternal decision of God. And you rule in love over every moment of space and time into the ages of the ages. Verse 5, and they will reign into the ages of the ages, all ages, all time, space and time. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, I am, am the one who heard and, and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. This was just so amazing that John starts worshiping the angel, the revealing angel. Angel means messenger, and there are lots of revealing messengers. The book of the Revelation is a revealing messenger, and lots of folks seem to worship it rather than worship with it. People think it's the revelation of the future. That is a map. So they try to use the revelation to save themselves, and they end up crucifying the Savior. They use it to make themselves first, and so what do they do? They crucify the last, and Jesus said, whatever you do to the last, you do to me. And whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Stop trying to save your life and worship the Savior. It's the revelation of Jesus. That's the title, the revelation of Jesus. Use the revelation to worship God in Christ Jesus. Luke chapter 17, the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom come? And he answers, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, paraturesis. I spent some time studying this. You know what it means? Empirical observation. The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Will there never be an end of all our ceaseless talk about the delay of the parousia, asked Karl Barth. 
How can the coming of that which doth not enter in ever be delayed? The end of which the New Testament speaks is no temporal event. What delays its coming is not the parousia, but our awakening. Now listen closely. I, I don't think that means that time as we know it will never come to an end. I think it means that time comes to an end at a torn curtain in the sanctuary of your own soul. And the sky really does roll up. And all things really do become new because everything that you thought was real is actually not at all very real. And everything that you thought was not very real, like faith or hope, is far more real than anything that you have ever touched. And love, far from being unreal, love is God. Worship God, not the revelation. Not the revealing angel. You know, the Bible's a revealing angel. Creation is a revealing angel. Spirits are revealing angels. To worship the revealing angel is called idolatry. Idolatry destroys you and the one that you idolize, for idols aren't, aren't persons but things. Never turn a person, in, never turn a person into, into a thing. And now this is wild, but this revealing angel, one of the seven bowl angels, looks an awful lot like Jesus, and also you'll see talks like Jesus. And we've wondered, is this the Spirit of Jesus? Well, the work of the Spirit of Jesus is to cause us to worship God in Christ Jesus, revealed in Christ Jesus. Whatever the case, this bowl angel says, worship God. It was one of the seven bowl angels that showed John the destruction of the harlot and then said, don't worship me, worship God. And it was also one of the seven bold angels, maybe this angel that shows, shows John the bride and says, don't worship me, worship, worship God. We've seen that we each have been the harlot, right? And we each become the bride. John can't help but worship when he sees his old harlot self destroyed. And John can't help but worship when he sees his new eternal self revealed. It's just like Isaiah, the end of Isaiah, chapter 66. All people walk out to the edge of the new Jerusalem, for they see the corpses of all people, all that have rebelled against them. They see the corpses of all people burning in the valley of Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And all people, they worship ceaselessly and ecstatically. Why? They worship for they see that God has saved them from themselves and save them for himself. They are his bride. The new Jerusalem, his sanctuary. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Agnus, Angus. That means like, like now. In Daniel, the, the scroll is sealed up until the time of the end. Now it's unsealed for the end is now. Now is the judgment of this world, said Jesus in John 12, 31. Now will the rule of this world be cast out. No wonder Satan doesn't want us to live now in the presence of God. Listen, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Verse 50, the Father's commandment is eternal life. Eternity touches time 
now. Uh, eternity, eternal life is, is now. When you worship, uh, that's when you make decisions or decisions make you. Someone's decision makes you. Now is the judgment, says Jesus. Now is the day of salvation, says Paul in 2 Corinthians. Uh, on us, the end of the ages has come, has come, says Paul in 1 Corinthians. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9, 26. And now listen closely to Hebrews 12, 18. You have not come to what may be touched. That is maps and charts and earthly governments like the nation state of Israel. You have not come to what may be touched. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are rolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Is speaking. Why do we occupy ourselves with laws and procedures and earthly governments and maps and charts and numbers and cycles and the secret meaning of dates, seasons, and years supposedly extracted from the Word of God? Maybe it's because we're running from the Word of God, the living Word of God. We're running from Him who is speaking now. We're running from the word to escape his judgment. Something in us knows that we took his life on the tree, but if we would stop and hear the judgment spoken from the tree by the very word that we nailed to the tree, we just might hear, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Don't judge the judgment. Look at the judgment and listen to the judgment and you will worship God for his judgment, his word in broken flesh, your prince. Verse 9. Worship God. Don't seal up the words of this book. For the time is at hand. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the evildoer still do evil. And let the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Let, let, let. Jesus is sending this to seven little churches in Asia Minor. In some of those churches, people are being seduced and trapped by evil spirits. In some, folks are about to be slaughtered in the arena. In some, there's heresy, betrayal. In some, there's apathy. And Jesus says, let it be. Worship God. <laughs> we worship the one who speaks all things into existence with his, with his word. Changing all of space and time is not a problem for him. But to change your heart into that of a worshiper, he suffered and died and descended into hell every hell, in order to know your sin and your sorrow and fill it with his grace and joy and rise from the dead to show you his face and let you put your fingers in his wounds. Worship God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. 
Behold, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, bringing my payment, my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. That is, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That's nowhere and nothing. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, that's the source, and the descendant of David. That's the fruit of David. As if Jesus made David a tree, turned him into a tree, a tree of life, his, his life. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Now, they could be talking to Jesus, calling to Jesus, or they could be calling to the people in the outer darkness. People debate that, whether they're calling to, to uh, Jesus or the people in the outer darkness. It could be both, because Jesus descends into the outer darkness, shows us his wounds, and makes us thirsty for him. He has numbered himself with the transgressors, says Isaiah. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let, the, let, 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 there's a whole lot of let. You know the word forgive in Greek can also be translated let. Let, let, let. Let the one who desires, who wants, take the water of life without price. It's free. That's the only way you can take it. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues, the wounds described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. In other words, they'll still be under the curse. Just as all who don't believe the revelation of Jesus remain under the curse. Until they learn to trust the revelation of Jesus, who is the judgment of God and the blessing of God. He who testifies to these things says, surely, surely, I'm coming soon. He's not a thief in the night. He's your husband. And he wants you to know him when he comes. And maybe, maybe he's coming like all the time. Surely, I am coming soon. That's the third time he said this in this chapter. And that was 2,000 years ago. Research this if you need to. But you know what that word soon means in the original Greek? Ted knows. What does it mean? Soon. Exactly. Soon means soon. It just means, it means soon. I'm coming soon. Maybe he's coming all the time. Maybe he came on Easter morning. Maybe he came at Pentecost. Maybe he comes in the last and the least of these his brothers. Maybe he is the way, the truth, the life, and the love that you encounter every day in the people that are all around you. He's the end and the beginning that was revealed to us on the tree in the garden. He's the plot. He is the revelation of God who is love. And maybe he is coming all the time. I keep thinking about this scene in a movie that I think you've, you've probably seen. It's from the movie A Beautiful Mind, the true story of, of, John Ma of John Nash, the brilliant mathematician from Princeton. He was able to recognize patterns that no one else could. And soon he began to ascribe meaning where no one else would. The whole cosmos became his mirror, his own mirror. At one point, he thinks he can comprehend everything, which means that he can be comprehended by no one. He trusts no one but himself. 
and goes insane. He is entirely sovereign over his own reality and so utterly alone, utterly alone until a woman enters his insanity and shows him what's real. She enters his world and writes a story of love with her own broken heart. And he begins to look into a new mirror. Or maybe he looks into an old mirror in a new way. This. 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 This is real. Maybe the part that knows the waking from the dream. John Nash went on to win the Nobel Prize in 1994. He ended his acceptance speech with this statement. I have made the most important discovery of my career, the most important discovery of my life. It is only in the mysterious equations of love that any logic or reason can be found. He surrendered to love, and love made his shattered world new. The logic of love is the Word of God who makes all things new. And maybe he's coming to you all the time so that you wouldn't run from him at the end of time, but would joyfully surrender to him for all eternity. Verse 20. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. If you said that in Aramaic, in the language of the people that day, it would be translated Maranatha. In the early church, it was a practice to say Maranatha at the Lord's table. So some scholars have postulated that the revelation was used as a call to worship, a call to worship at the Lord's table. Remember that they did not have TV in that day, and most of them didn't read. So they were happy to sit and listen to the whole thing read to them, the Revelation. We chop it up and use it to sell books and scare pagans, but they just sit and listen, just listen to the Revelation of Jesus. It begins like this. Blessed. You know, there are seven blessings in the Revelation. We just read two. This was, this was the first. Blessed, happy is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is at hand. Then they'd continue reading. They'd read it to the end and say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And then someone would take bread and break it, saying, this is my body given to you. 
And in the same manner, that person would take a cup and say what Jesus says. This is the blood of my covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. So say this after me. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Can you say it louder? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And so we invite you to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. Here's the tree. Here's the judgment seat. And here's the heart of God. Put it in you and worship. Amen. Then sings my soul, Lord God, when I see you in Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. And Lord God, may our souls never stop singing. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. But now we still haven't read the last verse of the Revelation. Verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Some ancient manuscripts, you can tell a nervous scribe added the word the saints, be with all the saints. But the best manuscripts end with all amen. And even amen isn't at the end of some manuscripts, which means the Bible ends with the word all. Father Gillick was visiting an elementary school when he struck up a conversation with a, with a child. A few minutes into their discussion, this little child just blurted out, you're blind. That was true. Due, an, due to an illness, he had lost his sight as, as a small child. With tenderness, he replied, My dear, that's not news to me. But before he could say more, she quickly moved from shock to, to, to sorrow, sadly replying, but, but you don't know what you look like. That statement caught Father Gillick off guard, and before he could respond, she ever so softly said, You're beautiful. <laughs> That's the news from heaven, the good news. The world can see or is coming to see. They can see that they're blind. But you have news from heaven, and you can share that news with the world right now. Scroll's not sealed. The revelation is the revelation of Jesus. And when you look at him, it also becomes a revelation of who you are. The new Jerusalem has the glory of God. She's beautiful. And that's who you are. So if you don't believe you're beautiful, you've been looking in the wrong mirror. Believe the gospel. Amen.